The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Well, buckle up, right? Are you ready to get to work with this chapter? Anybody sitting there going, man, I'm glad I'm not preaching that one today. (laughs) Me too. Wait. Oh. Okay, at first glance, this passage has everything we need to offend and confuse us. Anybody else there? Offend and confuse us. Number one, you hear about these extraordinary gifts, speaking in tongues, uh, prophesying. Some of us, we may have passionate beliefs about this. We'll remember that Christendom really is kind of split in half over this between, have you heard these buzzwords, charismatics, non-charismatics, and actually over the world, it's the charismatic church that is growing the quickest and spreading like wildfire. So there's some, there's some conflict between those two understandings of how to know God, how to worship. So that's one thing. It could be offensive. And not only that, it, it, it's kind of confusing. How many of you are like, I'm not even sure what I think about some of that? That's kind of where I am. I'll be honest with you on some of this. I, I'm not sure where I land. That's one part that was offensive. Then you heard some seemingly really rough words towards women. Did you notice that? Um, no, some ladies are like, what? I didn't know. No, we noticed it. Um, remain silent at church always? Really? I mean, if you've been here for very long, you know we have women praying. We have women reading the scripture. It happens all the time. We have women leading small groups. So are we in disobedience? What does this mean? And then also, if you've been paying attention at all, two chapters ago, Paul was talking about women prophesying and praying at church. Do you remember? Oh, so how do, how do we fit this together? What's he doing? What's he saying? Um, okay, so there it is. Between charismatic gifts and what he says about women, we're all like, what do we do now? And to be honest with you, I don't know, so let's pray. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You ever heard the phrase, don't miss a forest for all the trees? Okay. This passage has some very colorful trees in it. The spiritual gifts, some of this language, and we're like, whoa, let's not miss the forest. Because what we're going to see in here are some amazing principles for what we should be after when we meet together as a church, the corporate meeting. What should we want? And so the question really that should be raised in your mind and your heart is, why am I here? Why are we here? And, and, and maybe another question is, why should I be here? Why sh- what should I be after when I'm here? What, what am I hoping for? What am I looking for? What do I want? What, what should God have for me and others when we meet together? How does the worship of God corporately fit together with love for our neighbor? That's what Paul is getting at with the Corinthians. You'll remember, um, this church was a chaotic mess. I mean, later, you saw in this chapter, Paul actually has to tell people not to interrupt one another and to take turns when they talk. Okay, you may, I, have, I have several children, you may have noticed. They're the best children in the world. Occasionally, everyone wants to talk at the same time. You ever been there at that moment? And it's not just children that do it, sometimes the adults too. Everybody's interrupting, have a jar. And can you imagine church like that? Well, that's kind of what it was like for these folks when they would meet together. Everybody, oh, I want to share, I want to talk. And they're all at the same time. You'd be like, 
Uh, and that was just part of the mess. They were prideful. They were divided. So as we remember that context, we get into here, what do we do? Here's what I want to do. Um, three basic things. Number one, we probably have to do some explaining. We have to do some explaining. We have to try to define some of these terms. Tongues, prophecy, what was, what was Paul saying to those women there? Number two, then we're going to do some confronting. That's why you're here, right? You wanted to be confronted. Um, I think it's amazing how this passage speaks powerfully to both sides on the charismatic, non-charismatic spectrum. He's going to have some strong things to say to both sides to correct us on what we should want when we come to worship. So we'll do some explaining, we'll do some confronting, hopefully learn from that, and then we want to hang on to the heart, the heart of what it means as we worship our God and try to love one another. So those are the three things I'm after. And I am deeply aware that I won't be able to cover everything in a way that I want to. So here's what I'm going to do after the service. Maybe none of you will be interested, but I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to, get up a ch- I'm going to pull up a chair. And if you have any questions on anything about this topic at all, write them down as we go through this, and I will do my best to answer all of them, okay? If it's the perfect, if nobody stays, I'm just going to think, oh, it was the perfect sermon. I answered every question. So I'll, and if you stay with questions, then I'll be happy that we get to talk more about it. So either way, I'll be happy. But if you have questions after the sermon, stay right here. I'll do my best for you to answer them. Okay, let's start with explaining. Now remember, these, you got several chapters in a row here that are really, really dealing with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So what are those? Just to back up a little bit. Make this easier for us. Look at this, look at this passage from Romans chapter 12. Paul uh, is more succinct in this passage in Romans 12, talking about spiritual gifts. So here's Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Wow. First thing to see, verse 6. Where do we get spiritual gifts? It's grace given to us. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has given you a gift of grace. It's Charismatic is actually grace gift, okay? A gift of God's grace for the benefit of other believers. So there are unique talents and skills that you have to benefit other believers, and God gave them to you. And so what we know here is that each one of us, if you're a Christian, you have a gift, something you can do to serve and bless God's people. And man, what a diversity in gifts. There's a Did you see some of these? Yeah, you got prophecy, but then service. A gift of service? What does that include? I think it includes a lot of things, don't you? Being able to take care of and bless one another. Or uh, the gift of teaching. The gift of generosity, contributing. Um, So you see that the gifts are are very diverse, right? So we want to remember that in 1 Corinthians. He's going to compare two gifts, but that's not all the gifts at all. It's not even necessarily the most important of the gifts. So, for instance, the gift of tongues. This is the only place in the New Testament letters Paul talks about it. 
He mentions gifts a bunch of other places, but he doesn't talk about tongues. So let's not get hung up on saying this is it, this is all there is. No, gifts are a diverse thing. It's a broad thing. And the point is, you remember a couple weeks ago, we're the body of Christ. And so there are gifts that God has given me that he didn't give you. And why did he do that? So I can put my, na- my face on a poster and be like, you know, and you can have, whoa, look. At- no, that's not it at all. I'm supposed to serve you with those as best I can. Also, as you're well aware, there are gifts God did not give me. There are things I am not good at that you are good at, that you can do. Why did God make me so limited and needy? So I would need you so that you could serve me. Do you see the point? If we love one another, and that was the, the, the point of the passage last week, if we love one another, that's the glue that takes our diversity. We're so different and puts us together in unity so that we're like a body. The hand can't hear, but I'm glad I have two hands. The eye can't walk, but I'm glad I have some eyes. I'm glad I have feet as well. Do you see that the, the unity and diversity makes us whole? So that's what these gifts are about. And the Corinthians had done something pretty awful with these gifts. And instead of using them for unity and diversity, they were ranking one another by whose gift was more spiritual or which gift was better. And the one they really seemed to be infatuated with was the gift of speaking in tongues. So if you had that gift, you were spiritual, and when you came to church, you were going to rock that gift so everybody could see how gifted you were. And that's really turned it all upside down, hasn't it? The point of my gift is never for me. It's for you. The point of your gift is never for you. It's for us. And so Paul needs to correct how they're using this gift. Look what he says in chapter 14, verse 1. Number one, first two words, pursue what? Anybody see it? Pursue love. That's never wrong. It's always right. We saw this last week. If you don't have love, it's nothing. Nothing you're doing matters. Pursue love. But then the second part. Also, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then verse 2, he begins to reference the gift of tongues. Okay, now we're getting into Paul comparing and contrasting the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy. Are you ready? Drum roll, buckle up. Here we go. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? couple. How many of you are like, I have the gift of tongues. You, don't, may, you might not want to raise your hand, but you're familiar with this. Who's familiar with this? Okay. All right. Boy, what do we do? I, the first thing I want to say is, I'm about to give you what I think this chapter is saying, and I want you to know that if you strongly disagree with me based on your biblical arguments, I am totally okay with that. I just want to emphasize right away that this, this is not actually what Fountain of Life is all about. Uh, next next. Uh, coming up, and in the next chapter, Paul says, let me tell you what's of first importance. And you know what he talks about? The gospel, who Jesus is and, the, and what he's done. That's what we're all about. So let's never make a secondary thing the most important thing. We can have differing views on this and still love one another and still worship together because we're saved by one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's really important to remember. But nonetheless, you gotta land somewhere. You gotta look at the text. You gotta study it. What do you think? So here's, what we, here's where we go. This is what I think. I'm trying to define terms here. Tongues here in this 
passage, I think, is probably the personal speaking of an unknown language in prayer. Personal speaking of an unknown language in prayer. And it's a gift, right, according to this passage. Let's collect evidence. Why am I saying this? Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks what? Not to men. Okay, this is getting clear already. Who is the one who speaks in tongues speaking to in this passage, verse 2? Not to men, but to God. What's that called when you speak to God? Don't get too complicated, right? Prayer. It's prayer. It's a prayer language. One person to God. Speaks not to men, but to God. So it's prayer. It's also mysterious. Then Paul says, for no one, what? Understands him. So normatively, the people in the room next to that person speaking in tongues don't know what he's saying. In fact, as we're going to see, the prayer doesn't know what he's saying. No one understands him. He he utters mysteries in the spirit. So there's prayer. It's mysterious. Let's collect more information. Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue, what's the next phrase? Do you see it? Builds up who? Himself. Himself. Now, don't take this to say, you should never do this. This is prideful. It's just for you. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul actually says, I speak in tongues too. I'm not telling you not to do it. That's what he says in this passage. But he does say something about the experience. Who gets encouraged and blessed when someone speaks in tongues? That person. That person prays in that language they don't understand to God, and they get encouraged by it. So there's an individual sense to it. Do you see that here in this text? The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Not only that, there is a sense to this gift of heart over mind. Heart over mind. Look at verse 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Unfruitful. So so there's a sense of the emotive nature of this. There's a need, there's a hurt, there's a praise, but it's, it's more feeling-oriented. It's this, a crying out to God, but the mind isn't quite latched in on how to say it or what's being said. Do you see that from this passage? You know what it reminds me of? Look at this passage from Romans 8. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but who helps us? The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Maybe there's a connection here with what the Holy Spirit does in helping us pray and this gift of tongues that some people have where they speak out this prayer. They don't even know what they mean, but they kind of feel what it means. God, I need you to help me. And this, this voice comes out. They don't, they don't understand what it means, and they're so encouraged by it. That's the gift of tongues, I think, from this passage, the personal speaking of an unknown language in prayer. And so I want to remind us of this, spiritual gifts. Do we all have the same gifts? No. Some places will say that if you're a Christian, you must speak in tongues. And that could not be more unbiblical. Where does it say every Christian has every gift? Nowhere. In fact, it says every Christian does not have every gift. So if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't have the gift of speaking in tongues, I'm telling you here, I don't have the gift. 
of speaking in tongues. That's okay. If you do have the gift of speaking in tongues, praise God that he's used that in your life to encourage you. So, okay, we've looked at that gift probably, in my opinion, a personal speaking of an unknown language in prayer, and it encourages you. But look what Paul says in verse 18. This is important for corporate worship. Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. So first question, is Paul against this speaking in tongues? Of course not. No, he does it more. Nevertheless, look at verse 19. In church, when we're all together at a public meeting, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He is really demeaning the practice of everybody speaking in tongues out loud in a public service, isn't he? I'd rather speak five words with my mind that you could understand than 10,000 in a tongue. Wow. So back up to verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may what? Prophesy. Okay, now we got to define that term. What does that mean? Let's just back up big, big picture for a little bit. Old Testament, you got prophets, right? And they're always weird people. They dress weird. They do strange things. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the, the highest of the Old Testament prophet is in the bridge from Old Testament and New. You remember John the Baptist, right? He's actually a Presbyterian, but he did baptize people. No. Okay. He wore camel skins. He ate bugs. Okay, so you got these strange people, but they have this amazing intimacy with God, and he will speak to them in just radical ways. And so when they would speak, when Jeremiah speaks, when Isaiah speaks, it's God's word. So, and, and the New Testament shows this. So New Testament authors will quote what somebody in the Old Testament wrote, and they'll say things like, the Spirit says. So they'll say, God said, and then you look over here, and it was some prophet saying it. So the voice of God and the voice of the prophet were like one thing. So that meant when the prophet spoke in the Old Testament, it tested you. You didn't test it. You see the difference? It tested you. Same thing with apostolic teaching in the New Testament. The reason we are preaching from 1 Corinthians and not something I would make up is because I don't have that kind of authority. I'm not an apostle. Jesus made Paul an apostle. When Paul writes, this is God's word. It tests us. We don't test it. So what is this thing called? New Testament prophecy. Well, it's both greater and lesser than Old Testament prophecy. Are you tracking so far? Greater and lesser. Why is it greater? Number one, how many prophets were there in the Old Testament compared to the mass of God's people? Nobody, right? Most of God's people did not know God in that way and were not able to speak his word. New Testament comes and you got the prophet Joel saying, in the, in the last days, every one of my people will know me, and they'll all speak for me, men and women, boys and girls, the high status, low class, everybody will speak for me. See, when you come to know Jesus, he's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And guess what we are in Christ? 
You're a priest, it says in Peter. You mediate God's presence to one another in the world through your ministry. You're a king. You're a queen. Why? You're, you're heirs with Christ. You're going to inherit the kingdom. And guess what? You're a prophet. Which Christian gets to know God and speak God's word to the world and one another? All of us. So it's greater, and that all of God's people, we hear from God from his word, and we can speak it to one another. It's greater and lesser. As we see at the end of this chapter, Paul says, when someone prophesies, the rest of you need to test it. Oh. So it's not the same thing as, if I've got a word for you, thus says the Lord, you're going to do this and that. I can't say that. You need to test it. What are you going to test it by, by the way? God's Word. You test it by God's Word. It's so amazing what Paul says down in verse 37. Look at what Paul says in verse 37 about their prophecy in church. So they would speak to one another God's Word. And he says, great, you should all do this. But then in verse 37, Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So what I'm writing to you, that's God's word, and you test your prophecy by this standard. Does that make sense? So the community tests our teaching to one another according to the standard of God's word. That's what you should do with my teaching. What I say is not God's word unless it is accurate to what is here and appropriately applied. And you need to test what I say based on this standard. But that also means there can be no prophet out there who says they have a new word from the Lord and put it as high as scripture. No way. No way. We test, that. We test everything by the authority of God's word here, apostolic teaching. So what is this New Testament prophecy? Well, look, look back up into what, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, what do they do? Speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Upbuilding, it's to build one another up. Did you hear it in this passage? What's the whole goal as we come together? Build each other up, build each other up, build each other up. So this is, you know, if you think of a house, beautifying a house, you want to make it structurally strong. You want to make it more pleasing to the eye. You want to make it more efficient in how it works. We want to build each other up. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to be matured. We want to be more wise. We want to have more knowledge. We want, we want his character in us. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him. So how do we get built up? We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth of God's word in love. So when you, when you speak God's word to one another, you build each other up. He, saw, he also says we encourage one another. Have you, have you ever had somebody encourage you when you were low? You say, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not going to make it. You're depressed. You're discouraged. And somebody says, you know, I believe in you. God is with you. His word's with you. Let's follow him together. Let's go. You can do it. And you felt like, Okay, you had new breath, new life. We can and we should encourage one another with God's word. Paul says that's prophecy. That's this New Testament prophecy, this ministry of the word to one another. Same thing to console one another. Man, if you're hurting, 
If you're breaking down, we want to bless one another. We want to remind one another of God's sovereignty, of his love, of his kindness, of his patience, how Jesus is going to save us. And you can make it. It's okay. I'm with you in this hurt. That's the ministry of the word. One reason we have small groups and growth groups, guess what, theoretically, you are doing for one another? You encourage one another with God's word? I hope so. Do you need, do you need the pastor there for the group to work? No. Because y'all are prophets to do this. Encourage each other, build each other up, console each other with God's word. That's what we do. That's the gift of prophecy. Wow. Let's get confronted now. Each movement, let's get confronted. So, you're familiar with this charismatic, non-charismatic schism in the church at large. What do... Uh, our tribe, if you're new to us, tends to be non-charismatic. Um, what do we tend to emphasize? We tend to emphasize teaching, learning, um, content, scripture. We tend to emphasize order. And what do we tend to think about those who are charismatic? Eh, you're a little too feelings-driven, a little too experience-driven. Uh, you, you leave the solid ground of God's word too easily, too often. So we don't know about you. Okay. What would the charismatics say about us? They would say, well, you guys think God is the answer to a trivial pursuit question. You think he's a list of rules and factoids. And you hardly know how to clap except for when a mosquito flies in front of your face. You will never, seen, you will never be seen clapping during a song. Okay? You sing like you're at the dentist. Is it over yet? I know it's good for me. And a charismatic says, when we go to church, we think God's going to show up. And we are totally pumped to be in his presence. And he tells us to rejoice and we're darn well going to do it. Have you been to the service? They're not shy. They're, they're excited about God being with them. There's a sense of expectancy. Hey, God's going to work. I'm going to be with him right now. And Paul is going to rib both of us with an elbow. Okay? He's going to bring both, both of us home, maybe, closer to where we should be. So first, we tend to be the non-charismatic tribe. You ready? Let's get elbowed. You want to get elbowed? Okay, look at verse 24 of this passage. What should we want when we come to worship? Verse 24 gives us this amazing picture. If all prophesying an unbeliever and outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is really among you. Did this person who came just have a idea pass through his ears and go, oh, that's interesting. See you next Sunday. What happened? There's, there's this phrase, he fell on his face. Now, whether that's literal or a symbolic, what's happening to this person? They got, oh, oh my goodness. They got revealed they saw their own heart and its needs and its holes and its dark spots. 
And they saw how Jesus fixes that and changes that and how they need him. And they go away saying, God was there. Oh my goodness, God was there. And then when they sing, they're singing to somebody who's right here. He's here. Isn't that what we should want in worship? Every time. Every time. God, speak to me. Meet me. Pound me. Show me. When you, when, you, when you see the presence of God, is anyone just icy, cold, immovable? Or do we all get melted by it? That's worship. It's worship. We want an encounter with God. God was there to be changed. Wow. So I think we learn from this passage, and our charismatic brothers and sisters can teach us, you should come to worship with expectancy and anticipation and joy, because you're meeting God himself. Whoa. How are you going to apply that to yourself? How do you get ready for worship? You know, sometimes we walk into worship, we're just responding, we're following the habits of the week, we're kind of like, oh yeah, uh, and then we, what if we prepared ourselves for it somehow? Saturday nights, earlier Sunday mornings, like, I'm going to go meet with God with my brothers and sisters, and he's going to show and you cared a little bit less about what everybody thought, and you were ready to deal with God somehow when you're hearing his word and singing to him. We can learn. We can learn. Uh, anybody feeling more charismatic? They want to give me an amen or something? Uh, oh, careful. All right, all right. Charismatics get elbowed too. We're going to see two ways the Spirit works here, verses 6 to 12, verses 20 to 25. Verses 6 to 12, Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp don't give distinct notes, how will anybody know what is played? Here's the point. You see in verse 6, you see in verse 12, you see throughout the whole passage, the point of worship is to build one another up. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to meet with God. I want you to be changed. I want you to be affected. That can't happen, Paul is saying, without intelligible truth. Without intelligible truth. Speak the truth in love. That's what builds you up. It can't happen without intelligible truth. So he brings the idea of an instrument. Sometimes my kid will try to play a guitar. And you know how it sounds when, or when Zeke plays the piano. He's my one-year-old. How does it sound? You know, just, that's sweet. You're cute. That's why we're letting you do this. But that sounds terrible. Versus when you take an instrument and you play specific notes on purpose. And all of a sudden you've got the beauty of a song. Okay? Tongues in public, Paul seems to be saying, is like an instrument just... And nobody gets any benefit of it. Whereas an intelligible truth going after the heart and going after the mind from God's word, that's a beautiful song. That can change you. The Spirit works through intelligible truth. Isn't that what he says in verse 6 to 11? Also, verses 20 to 25. Now he's thinking a little bit more about unbelievers. I love how he assumes that there's going to be skeptics and seekers in the room. Two of the Greek words he uses here, one is like a doubter. I don't know about Christianity, but they made it here anyway somehow. Good job bringing them. The other one, somebody's like, oh, 
I'm not against it. I'm checking it out. What's it got to say? They're here too. That's great. Wouldn't, we want those. If you're here, if that's you, we're so glad you're here. We want you, we want you always to be here. We want there always to be people like that here, right? Yes. And so Paul is thinking of those people, the visitor who comes. And look what he says in verses 20 to 21. Man, don't be immature in your thinking. Don't be children. Be infants and in evil in your thinking mature. And the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Okay, what? Paul's quoting from Isaiah, and part of the judgment on God's people is going to be that Assyria is going to come and take over them. And what do the Assyrians speak? Assyrian. Okay? And what do the Israelites not speak? Assyrian. So they are going to hear this language that they don't know, and it's a sign of judgment. In the same way, if an unbeliever walks into the room and all he or she would hear is this gift of tongues, what do they understand? Nothing. What are they going to think about the church? Paul says it here, not me. He will say, verse 23, they are crazy train. They are crazy train. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I had no idea what was going on. And it will be judgment to that person. How so? Because when they came, they should have heard the gospel intelligibly. So they could think about it, deal with it, understand it. It could have saved them. They should have seen this is the body of Christ and they should have heard the gospel and been saved by it. And instead, if what they go away with is just hearing things that made no sense, they'll leave saying, Christians, crazy train, I'm going somewhere else. And what would that be? That's a shame. It's judgment. They didn't hear the gospel. So Paul, do you hear Paul pleading? He's saying, I'm not telling you not to speak in tongues if you have the gift. I'm saying, don't do it in a public setting to where that gets all the attention because you're not building people up. And that's the point, is to build people up. So the Spirit, as Paul's saying very clearly, right? Hey, charismatic, the Spirit works through intelligible communication of the gospel, it builds people up inside and outside the church. The Spirit also works through self-control. I love this. Look at verses 26 to 33. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. What a great church, right? They're all ready. Imagine a big old small group and everybody's ready. What'd you read this week? I read this. It was awesome. Hey, you want to try this new song? Let's worship God together. Hey, I got this prayer I put together. Let's pray together. And they're all sharing it with each other and we're like, wow, these guys are passionate. They're bringing stuff in. This is great. But look what he has to tell them in verse, 20, in verse 27. Could you take turns? Could you not make it an endless list? You want, you want to speak? You want to share? If somebody else starts first, can you just be quiet and let them go? Isn't it embarrassing that he actually has to say that? But here's the amazing thing. God may give you a gift, something to share with someone, and he may also tell you to shut up that evening. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you don't have the gift, don't use it. He's saying sometimes you have a gift and it's somebody else's turn. 
And if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll be humble and you'll be kind and you'll wait your turn. You don't need to talk this time. And for me, some of the charismatic circles I've been in, if you have the Holy Spirit or you have a a gift, that is like the green card to say and do anything you want at any time. Let's go crazy. The Spirit's here. And Paul actually says, if the Spirit's here, you won't go crazy. Because the the spirits of the, look at verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You're a prophet, control yourself. You self-control with the motivation of what? Everybody else. Everybody else. This is for love. I went to a church a long time ago, different church, you don't know any of these people, so we'll keep all the guilty uh, safely hidden. There was this wonderful lady who had this huge tambourine with ribbons all over it. And she would come into our little church, and when the singing went, she would just go, I mean, all out with this tambourine. Wajaka, jaka, jaka, jaka. Loud, moving, everywhere. And listen, on one side of the coin, she loved to worship God, and she wasn't ashamed of it. Can we appreciate something about that? When the rest of us are like, My neighbor might see me show emotion about Jesus, and that can't happen. She's worshiping God. And I think God's pleased by that worship to an extent. But what is everyone else in the room thinking about? Holy good grief, that woman. And what is she keeping them from doing? Worshiping. So worship God with all your heart and keep in mind your neighbor. Why? So that they can worship God with all their heart. Because we want to build each other up. Control yourself. Okay, now three minutes on this passage to women. Uh, Listen, have mercy upon me, okay? Have mercy upon me. I preach on this passage, the head covering thing, from two chapters ago, if you want to know the whole biblical idea I'm unpacking here, I got a sermon for you. It's on the website. Ask questions after the service. So I'm not going to take this with the time that it honestly deserves. It deserves more time. I just can't do that this morning unless you all want to stay to three. Okay. No, I heard you. I hear you. I don't either. So what is going on? I'm just going to give you a nugget, okay? Listen, He tells three people in those verses to be quiet. He tells, hey, you speaking in tongues, take turns. Be quiet. Hey, you prophesying, you. Be quiet. Hey, you ladies, in this context, be quiet. It's a shame for you to speak like this. Why can I say like this without just trying to make this easier for you? Because in chapter 11, what are women doing in the service? We read Paul say it. They are speaking God's word and they are praying right? But that chapter on head coverings was all about honor headship. Now, that's what I don't have time to go into, but I tried to do that for us in that whole sermon. But headship is this, melted down, okay? Jesus is the great picture of headship and how to respond to it. Jesus always submitted to his father, and he supported the leader of his father. The father said, go save the world. Jesus was like, I'm in. I'm on it. Let's go. And then when Jesus came, he's our head. He's my head. Do you like having Jesus as your head? He laid down his life for me 
to win me, and now he takes responsibility for me and cares for me. I love that. And so I want to honor him, my head, in how I live. I want to honor him in how I live. That does, I don't find that that demeans me at all. It's my joy. It didn't demean Jesus at all for him to honor his father. It's his joy. Headship happens in several places in the church for God's glory. One is marriage. And we saw how the Corinthian women were doing this fashion thing that totally demeaned marriage and made it seem like they didn't care about marriage. Okay? So imagine this setting. Some people are prophesying, a small group. Some dudes say, hey, X, Y, and Z, God says this. And then the church is supposed to do what? Test it. Which means, inevitably, some person shares a prophecy, and what does the church say about their teaching? Sorry, Joe, but we love you. Think you were a little off. And here's why. That can and should happen, right? What would it do to headship if Joe gives a word from God and his wife is the one who walks up and says, well, that wasn't very good, was it, everyone? Do you feel it? What's it do to that marriage a little bit? What's it do to how they're supposed to honor it? Not only, I think, uh, God has set up qualified men to be elders, the head of a local church. And so who would have the ultimate say on testing a prophecy in the local church? It would have to be the elders. That's their job. That We're supposed to lay our lives down to teach you the truth, okay? And so, and even other commentators who would disagree with how I'm saying it would say, hey, there's these ladies they were, they were interrupting during this time of looking through, like, um, testing the prophecy. Ladies, these ladies, you need to stop. That's the feel of what this is about, okay? If you're like, no, it's not, talk to me later. That's all the time I can give to it. How do we wrap this up? Well, we've seen, we've looked a little bit at what tongues are. It's a gift, right? A personal prayer language for your encouragement. Not everybody has it. You don't have to have it. If you have it, that's awesome. Be encouraged. But when we're together, we don't want to emphasize tongues in the microphone. Why? Not because it's not a gift, but because it doesn't build people up. We want people to be built up. We want a believer to say, oh, God's moving in me through his word. We want somebody who comes in from outside saying, God was there. I heard, I, I heard this, this was different. An encounter with God. And that happens through intelligible truth, which is why when we meet together, what's the gift we want to emphasize? Prophecy. In the sense that we encourage one another, console one another, teach one another with God's word. Does that make sense? So what are we here for? What are we here for? Wrap it up in these few principles. Number one, we're here to worship. We're here to worship. I want our church to have more of a sense of anticipation that when we come here together, no matter how many people are here, no matter what time of year it is, we are going to meet with God. And he's here. Can we believe that? Yes. Jesus came for us. We have the spirit. We're his family, his temple, his bride, his body. He's here. Come on. Let's worship. Let's get hit by his word. Let's sing praises to him. Second, we're going to do that by God's word. We worship by God's word. God has told us how he wanted to do things. So just because somebody thinks they have a something doesn't mean everybody jumps in and it's every man for himself. We want to use self-control in how we worship. Why? For others' sake. For your sake. 
for my sake. So we worship with self-control. That's a spirit-led worship. All our hearts with self-control for the benefit of others. We come here for others. And why is it like this? Because of Jesus. This is what's most important. This guides our worship. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is most important. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared. Jesus is the ultimate worshiper who loved his father. And what did he do for us? He came in the flesh. You know, speaking of being intelligible, how hard would it be to reach up and get to God? How do you find God? Can you force him to do anything? Can you grab him by the scruff of the neck? The only way to know God is he has to come to to us. To be intelligible, he has to speak our language. This is what's so amazing about Christianity. Not only did God speak our language, he wore our skin. He breathed our air so that we could see in the face of Jesus, God the Father. He came intelligibly so that we could be brought to worship. And he did it for love. He did it in love. Everything was love. Has he considered you and loved you? And he lived the life you couldn't live. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. He rose from the dead for you so that if you will just trust him and look to him, all your sins forgiven. And you're given this new identity of child of God, son of God, daughter of God. Life makes sense. The universe makes sense. Meaning and truth and purpose, you you know it through Jesus Christ. He's the guide for what it means to worship with love for one another. He's the reason we come to the Father to worship, and we do it with the self-control that says, I want to build everybody else up. Do you see that heart for worship together? Let's worship like that. Awe of the presence of God, submission to his word, and this burning passion to build one another up according to his word.